Our scripture today is 2 Samuel 19, 1 through 8. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, it's page 344. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in, who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. This is the word. Absalom has lost this battle. David has won this battle against his son uh, who has tried to a coup, tried a coup to overthrow his dad. And in the process, he's in terrible anguish over this. And before the battle, uh, there's this background verse that we need to reread. It's in 2 Samuel 18, verse 5. It reads this, And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. The orders weren't followed by Joab, who killed Absalom, because Joab knew that the only way to rid of the cancer was to get rid of it completely, that there can't be any remnant, there can't be any amount left, otherwise it will come back stronger, it will overtake David and his kingdom. So here Joab is exercising wisdom while David is being sentimental about all of this. And Joab hears what David is doing after this victory. They're, they're getting ready to head back into Jerusalem. And uh, we're going to look at these three characters towards the end of 2 Samuel 19. But they're heading back over to Jerusalem. David is devastated about losing his son. And Joab just isn't having it. Joab is David's nephew, and so he's going to his uncle, and he sees the fragile state of his uncle's kingdom, and he just tells David, you got to snap out of this. you got to deal with this. Verse 9, And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who he has anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So Israel's dealing with some very, very serious issues right now. The tribes 
of the kingdom are all arguing with one another. They're just in this really huge political mess. And so how is David going to be put back on the throne when he left the throne and Absalom took it over? So now David is thinking, how am I going to bring the kingdom back together? What am I supposed to do? And so this is what he attempts to do. Verse 11. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house, when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both of you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. He sends this news to the elders of Judah. Why does David do this? Well, because that's his tribe. And he's going to take a swing at this wonderful word that we all love in all of the places that we work, nepotism. Right? Don't we all love that? Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. He also goes to Judah for another reason. Because Judah isn't completely trusting of David because those are Absalom sympathizers over there. A lot of them. A lot of Absalom sympathizers in Judah. And Joab just killed Absalom. And Joab is put in charge of Absalom's army. And so Judah's just kind of like, what's David going to do to us when he finds out that we were pro-Absalom? Not all of Judah, but a fair amount. So in verse 13, David appointed Amasa who is also one of David's nephews, as the new commander of this army. And so Joab, another nephew of David, obviously on the side of his uncle, but because he puts Amasa on that side, who was pro-Absalom, this move in appointing Amasa as commander was so that the people in Judah who were pro-Absalom could then rest assured, you know, David wouldn't put Amasa in charge if he was going to do something to us. So... For us to be disloyal to David and loyal to Absalom, we don't have to worry as much because he's putting Amasa in charge. And so that's why verse 14 was recorded here. He swayed the hear of all the men of Judah. None of us likes nepotism, right? No one likes favoritism except those who experience the favoritism. But everyone else is just like, oh, they got it because that's the boss's son or that's the boss's daughter. And like, that's the only reason they're not even the brightest in this company. And no one likes this stuff. And so we're going to get to that in verses 40 through 43. But realistically, looking at this, what else was David supposed to do? Because he needed to start somewhere. And the best chance of gaining support was probably in his own backyard from his own people. And even though it was in Judah and, and that's where Absalom's coup started, he still needed to start there himself. You look back in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 7 through 10, this is where the rebellion started. It started in Hebron, which is in Judah. And Absalom obviously started there because he had support there. His dad is from there. He grew up there. And Absalom had a lot of support in Judah. And so Judah was also where Ahithophel was from. And if you remember, Ahithophel was David's former senior advisor. 
who jumped over on the coup side with Absalom. And that you can read in chapter 15, verse 12. And it's also where this new commander, Amasa, is from. And so you can see all these Absalom sympathizers who are from Judah. And so it makes sense that Judah's wondering, what is David going to do with us? Because we have so many Absalom sympathizers. And so this is what David thinks about. I need Judah back on my side, and so what, what do I have to do to help them think that I'm not going to punish them, I'm not going to kill them. And so this is the maneuvering that I have to do to do this. But again, no one likes favoritism except for the ones who are favored, and we'll get to that later. So these three characters we're going to look at, Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai, are all in this chapter. First, let's take a look at Shimei. Verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows what I ha that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai the son of Zeruiah answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. For those of you who don't remember who Shimei is, this is back in chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. It's the guy as David is trying to leave Jerusalem, is cursing at David, is throwing rocks at David. And the reason why he's doing this is because he's a descendant of Saul. And so David overtook Saul. He forgets that David gave him chesed, that David showed him kindness by not killing him. Because David, he's a new in the regime. Historically, what would happen is they would wipe out everyone from the previous regime. But no, he doesn't do that. He keeps Shimei alive. And so as he's going out, Shimei's just throwing rocks at him and he's cursing him. That's Shimei. And then you notice someone else with him. Ziba. If you guys don't remember who Ziba was, Ziba's the guy who is Mephibosheth's servant who comes down and tells David, oh, Mephibosheth is, is not for you. I am. Here's all this stuff for you. Go on your way. And he lies and he slanders about Mephibosheth. And so David says, you know what? The stuff that I gave Mephibosheth, I'm giving to you. And again, David showed Mephibosheth chesed, kindness. Why? Because Mephibosheth is a son of Jonathan. He is a descendant of Saul. And again, he's supposed to be wiped out. He's not supposed to even be there. And so David blesses him and gives him Saul's estate. And, and then he hears this lie, which he at the time believes because he doesn't know it's a lie. And so Ziba's not, Ziba goes over there with Shimei because both of these guys, he's, he's, he's scared. He's back. He won. We're dead. And so they go and they meet him and they say, like, David, sorry. 
And so Shimei admits he's wrong. He attempts to show David his loyalty by showing up early to meet the king. He's the first one out of the house of Joseph, meaning all the northern tribes. And he brings a thousand Benjamites with him to show we're all behind you. We all want to be with you. Abishai wants to get rid of Shimei, like King David. This is the same guy you showed him kindness before as we're leaving. He doesn't bless us. He curses us. And he's throwing rocks at us as we're trying to leave. And David says, no, we're not going to do that. And maybe because of how it would look to the Benjamites and all the rest of the northern tribes, because if David says, that, yeah, wipe them out, what kind of message would that give to them that he's now their king and he's just going to take revenge on everyone who came against him? Like, it just doesn't look good. The problem with all of this is that who knows if Shimei really changed. See, he, he knew David was back in power and he's just trying to save his own life. And so if Absalom came back as king, same thing probably would have happened. He would have showed up to Absalom and said, Hey, Absalom, you know, as David went out, I cursed him and I threw rocks at him and I, I knew you were going to win. And look, we have a thousand Benjamites. We're behind you. And he's just that type of person that just kind of shifts. Right? He shifts whoever's in power, whoever's going to benefit him, however he's going to be able to live. He just shifts with whoever has the influence and the power. There are people like that in this world. There are people like that in the church. That they just position themselves with whoever aligns with their own self-interest or with some sort of gain. But then when things get challenging or things get difficult, where is that ultimate submission that we are to have to Christ? And that submission to forgive one another, to make peace with one another, which David is attempting to do. He's attempting to forgive these people that went against him. For, he's attempting to make peace. He doesn't want to kill Shimei. And so even though things are tough and there's disagreements and people came against you at one time and they're now coming back, that David is gracious, forgiving. He's wanting to make peace. They didn't come back to him and he says, no, get out of my kingdom. Or you're, you're all dead. That we are to have a peacemaking heart within us and a, a desire to forgive even when people have wronged us. And then we reach this other character, Mephibosheth, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table, what further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely home. The last time we heard about Mephibosheth was back in chapter 16, when Ziba said some things that were untrue 
about Mephibosheth to David. And this time Mephibosheth makes sure that he is there himself to speak to the king and to tell him why he was not there. Why he didn't go out in exile with the king. And so Mephibosheth tells him and he also shows him where his loyalty and his heart lie. Verse 24, he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. So Mephibosheth is, is showing that I, I was there with you in spirit, David. Like I was in exile with you. I, didn't, I, I haven't cleaned myself. I haven't trimmed my nails. I haven't cut my hair. I, I've just, I wanted to be there with you, and so this is how I'm showing you. I was there with you. And Ziba slandered against. He lied that Ziba went off by himself because he was able to, and I'm physically not able to. Because as you know, Mephibosheth was disabled. And so then Mephibosheth stops to acknowledge, David, you're right. I am from the house of Saul. What was supposed to happen was you were supposed to wipe us all out. This is a new regime, and so thank you for showing me chesed. Thank you for showing me kindness because I am a descendant of Saul. I am supposed to be dead, but you showed that kindness to me. And all that matters now for me is that you're right back on the throne where you're supposed to be. So you can take all of it. I have my life. Thank you. And we'll just leave it at that, David. Thank you. And so David then makes this decision that to some might just seem pretty unfair. When Mephibosheth was lied about, David gave Ziba the entire estate. He says, take everything from Mephibosheth. You, you're getting everything from Saul's assets. And so now, he says, we're going to divide it. Ziba's going to keep half of what it is, and you're going to get back the other half. And so in one sense, he does accept Mephibosheth's explanation, and he gives back half of the estate, but you recall back in chapter 16, verse 4, that David gave Mephibosheth that entire estate to Ziba. But then Mephibosheth tells what happened. He, David gives back half of it because Ziba lied. And so some of us might be thinking, why half? Why doesn't he give back the whole thing? The guy lied about it. He's, he's a liar. Why did David give back half after he took all of it from Mephibosheth? Well, Ziba is a very deceitful person, a liar, yes he is, but there's a part of it where he actually helped David because he did help David escape the city with all the provision, all that food and everything that David's entourage needed, thousands of people. He provided a lot of the equipment and the resources and the provisions and the food for David to leave the city. And so Ziba is playing this political game in chapter 16, and it worked. Because if Absalom won, he'd still be fine, because he would have said, like, yeah, I just gave it to him to get him out of here, and I knew you were going to win, so, you know, welcome back, Absalom. I knew you were going to do it. And if David won, he can always go back and say, like, you know, um, David, yeah, I lied about it. I'm sorry. But, you know, without those provisions, you guys wouldn't have made it, right? Like, I, I, I helped you guys get out of here, right? So he's playing kind of these both sides to kind of politically align himself. And so the other thing is Ziba obviously has some influence. He has 15 sons and 20 servants, verse 17. 
And he has all of them there to greet David at the Jordan, along with Shimei, who has a thousand Benjamites with him. And so they have this contingent here of all these people that kind of wrong David, but with 15 sons and with 20 servants, he, he is someone with resources. He is someone with influence. And since David can use all the allies he can possibly get because all the tribes are fighting with each other, how is he going to punish Ziba now? How is he going to do that? How is he going to take everything away from him? And so he decides, you know what, I, I'll split it. They're both going to have plenty. You know, it's the former king's asset. No one's going to be hurting. And so even though Mephibosheth was lied about, he was slandered about, his disability was taken advantage of by Ziba as his appearance and his story prove his loyalty to David. And even though he, he couldn't show up for David, Ziba's provision to David actually came from Mephibosheth's resources. So in essence, Mephibosheth did what he could and David honored this. David realizes, okay, Mephibosheth, I hear this story, and I realize those resources are originally from you. And he did what he could, just as Jesus honored Mary in Mark chapter 14, verse 8, where it reads, she has done what she could. That Mephibosheth has done what he could. He was physically unable to do for David what others were able to do, but he stayed loyal to David as he could. And his loyalty to David wasn't out of mere survival like Shimei's. It wasn't out of greed like Ziba's. His loyalty is a true loyalty. And it was out of these ungroomed nails and hair and clothing. And David looked at his heart at what he could do. You know, some of us may be looking at our own situations and, and maybe you don't have a lot of means and maybe you have a lot of means and who knows, but I think the Lord looks at what you can do with what you have. And for you not to necessarily compare to somebody else that they're doing this much more or they're doing this much less, that the Lord looks at your heart. And what have you done with what you have? And then lastly, there's Barzillai. Verse 31, now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rohilim, and he went on with the king of the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. I don't think that's that aged anymore, right, guys? Come on. <laughs> he had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mehanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. Barzillai is this wealthy farmer 
who provided for David and all his people, all the provisions while he was in Mahanaim. And we first meet Barzillai in chapter 17. Barzillai is this elderly man who comes down from Rohilim with David to bid David a fond farewell. David recognized Barzillai's contribution and support during this time of exile. And he invites Barzillai into his own home and his own court and to treat him as one of his own as a sign of gratitude for all the support. And since Barzillai sustained David in such a time of need, David will sustain Barzillai for the rest of his life. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to have the best to eat, the best to drink, the best entertainment. I'm going to shower you with everything. Barzillai says, no thank you. Respectfully, no thank you, king. And he tells David why. David, I'm 80. I, I don't really enjoy food all that much anymore. I don't enjoy drink all that much anymore. I don't enjoy entertainment all that much anymore. I, I just prefer to live out my last years near the graves of my parents where I hope to be buried myself. I just want to be with my family. I want to be with my people, my neighbors, my community. That's what I would like. But uh, if you want to repay me somehow, um, take Kim Hum. Kim Hum is not told to us who exactly he is. Most likely, he is one of Barzillai's sons. And so he says, take him and, and treat him like you would have treated me, and that's good enough for me. And so Barzillai is loyal to God's appointed king. He, he recognized God chose David to be king. He stays loyal to God's will throughout all of this using his wealth and, and, and blessing David and all his people. He does not shift. He does not even think about going over to Absalom. He's someone who isn't looking to gain anything politically or get wealthy from a situation. He's not like Shimei whose loyalty just shifts with whoever's in power. He's not like Ziba who's just angling to benefit from others' situations and circumstances or, or disabilities. Barzillai is someone who is fully content. He's fully content with his own life, and he's just simply doing what is going to honor God. Here, Barzillai is fulfilling his calling. When he was called to do something important for the kingdom of God, he did it. And he stayed loyal to God's covenant king. And he was completely at peace with that. He, he was completely content. And that is so different from all the other people we've encountered in this story in 2 Samuel. So many who were discontent and who were looking for power grabs, who were looking for money grabs, who were looking for revenge. And you look at Absalom and Ahithophel and Ziba and Shimei, not Barzillai. At complete peace, at complete contentment in serving the Lord where he was called and, and when that need presented itself, he stayed loyal to God. And so whether you have little like Mephibosheth because it was all taken away from him after Ziba's lie, or you have a lot like Barzillai, they both did what they could with what they had. Verse 40, the king went on to Gilgal and Kimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel 
came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king, but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel? Back to nepotism. People don't like it. They fight over this stuff. And, and so only the people who are favored like favoritism, right? And those who weren't from Judah don't like what David did. David, those are the guys that this whole rebellion started out of. It started in Judah. Absalom brought about this whole coup there. Ahithophel is coming out of there. The new commander of the military, you assigned that guy? And so it comes off really polarizing. It comes off really divisive. But then we look at the situation again. What else was David to do? Because if he goes the other way, these guys are already mad. It probably shuns Judah. Because they would have said, no way, David, are we bringing those guys back. What we should do is we should wipe them out. But he brings Judah back in first, the ones who started the whole revolt. And he works backwards. And he knew that he knew, needed Judah's support in order to bring back the entire kingdom. But the tribes in the south are understandably upset because of what the north kind of started. Right? That coup started there. The biggest traitors are from there. They're the ones that started this entire mess. And Judah doesn't apologize about anything. They just say, like, yeah. He's one of ours. He's one of our own. And they actually highlight that. Yeah, he's a close relative. And they point out that they haven't gained anything. So they're like, hey, you guys are complaining about nothing. Like, what does it really get us anyway? It's not like he gave us anything. He's not like giving us more gold or anything like that. Stop complaining. And they have this fight. And so what's the big deal? So he brings us in. He, he's not giving us tax breaks. He's taxing you guys the same as he's taxing us. There's nothing to argue about. And so they just continue arguing and arguing, and that's just what politics are, aren't they? You just can't get anywhere with it. And people argue about politics inside the church all the time, and this should be a lesson. Like, you're not going to get anywhere with it. You're just going to fight. And there's nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes tells us. If there's anything to kind of argue about, maybe we should argue about the devotion to God and our loyalty to those spiritual things. That the rightful king is on the throne and there is no peace in the kingdom as long as people are fighting about these sorts of things. So let's focus on the spiritual things. Let's focus on devotion to God. So when you focus on the political stuff, people are just envious of the other side and there's just animosity that grows and it happens in the church all the time. It's happening now. How the church politicizes so many things and so many issues and you'd think in a church we'd be able to get along. That we'd be focused on Jesus. 
But unfortunately, that's not the case. We are all broken people. We all have faults. And we all bring them in here. How do you think we're going to deal with stuff? We're going to mess it up. And here's the most assuring sign to me that God is real and that God is going to use the church to move forward his kingdom. The very sign that there is a church after so many thousands of years is enough proof that God is real. Don't you think? Because how else in the world can we still be in existence thousands of years later when we've argued about so much, if the church was indeed constructed by people, we would have self-destructed a long time ago. A long time ago. Wouldn't we? I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I'm amazed that we're still here. Honestly. I'm so being honest right now. How have we survived... I wish I would have cataloged everything. The book would have been amazing, I think. All the infighting in the church. I'm just talking about even ours. I'm not even talking about all the other churches out there in the world. I'm just talking about ours. All the infighting that we've endured here. All the lies. All the backbiting. All the bickering. All the rumors. All the slander. All the sin. All the stubbornness and the hurt feelings over the most trivial, small things, and very, very serious things. All of those things, if this wasn't a God-ordained thing. I mean, it's impossible. We're only here because of God's grace, of God's own chesed. The grace of God is the only reason why we're even here. That it's more powerful than all of the past two decades of junk that we've dealt with. That Jesus continues to build his church. Otherwise we would have disappeared a long, long time ago. And yet we're going to continue dealing with all this stuff because we're broken people and there's an opportunity for us to remain loyal to practice contentment and to do everything that we possibly can with everything that we have for the kingdom of God, knowing that we serve the rightful king. So it's just doing what we can with what we have. And that might be very humble at times and other times it may be a time that we're doing really, really well and we have to exercise those things like Barzillai and there's other times where we have to exercise what we have with the Mephibosheth where we have nothing and all we can do is grow out our nails and our hair and not wash our clothes. And some of you who serve at Crossreach know this is to be true. They do with what they have. God bless them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy, your grace. So many imperfections that we've brought into the church with us, and yet you have been faithful. God, I pray that our hearts aren't hardened. May we be like David in this sense. We know that David is far from perfect. He's made so many mistakes, but 
he is a person after your own heart and there are some things that he's done that have been wise and he's done well so we pray lord that we would do those things in jesus name amen let's take out our communion elements and have communion with each other if you don't have those elements please hold up your hand and we can get that over to you let's first take out the bread symbolizing the body of christ broken for us broken for us imperfect people. And yet he makes this sacrifice for us. We take this in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. He told us to do this until his return. So we do this faithfully in Christ's name. Lord Jesus, I pray that we've taken inventory of our own life where we need to exercise forgiveness, we need to exercise that grace to someone else. And as this is a weekly reminder, Lord, this sacrament of being like you, that we would take this in a worthy manner. Uh, If we have those animosities, those envies, those things that are not pushing towards peacemaking. I pray that you would move us in that way, that you would posture us with that attitude. In your name, amen.